consistently pick the clip that makes me seem most oh, yeah. opaquely stupid. <laughs> <laughs> hey, if I ever said anything that made me sound opaquely stupid, I'd I'd use that. Well, welcome to this week's episode of Fear, Honor, and Interest, the podcast where two straight white guys who went to Yale solve America's cultural divisions by starting their show just after the call to prayer. Uh, and barely avoiding the same unfortunate uh, issues we had with sound quality in the first episode by only a few minutes. I'm your host in Washington, D.C., Charles Bovinger, with me on the line, from, as always, from Istanbul, my co-host, David Wheel. David, how is it going? Uh, I'd be going better if I had better, more faith in your uh, choice of an intro. I just assume that uh, our listeners or you know, whoever that one or two people might be, uh, are used to my, you know, sounding drunk and distracted in some bizarre, uh, train of thought, but well, that's, uh, it's just the, the price that I pay for having these, for having this incredible platform. Exactly. I suppose that's it's, just the, it's more to the point. It's the price that you pay for not learning how audio editing software works. <laughs> Um, but besides, that would be pretty if, ridiculous if uh, if we both every week uh, put out put out the show <laughs> out and they're just own. totally different versions. Yeah. That's actually a really good idea. That would be pretty funny. You'll just have to learn how to record audio, how to edit audio, how to post audio. Right. Um, and hopefully, hopefully, our fate would be equivalent to the uh, Turkish Nationalist Party that split in half hmm. uh, prior to this last election, but each half doubled in size and so the total vote share given to uh uh the nationalists went from like 10 percent to 20 percent roughly speaking oh. so maybe our audience would uh you know we'd, we'd both have this uh hardcore it's, of, of it's listeners. true i'd still be getting two people but only you, but you'd also be getting two people um yeah. it, would, it would be quite fascinating now if i really wanted to make you sound drunk I would just set your portions to half speed because oh, yeah. everybody sounds drunk at half speed. I that that is quite a thought. Yeah. If you switched my you know, the sections when we're not talking over each other and it's just me talking and if you put that on like double speed or or like 1.5 that would be that would, that would probably make me sound like a normal person. That would make you take up about the same time as me. Yeah. I need wow. to... What, one of the things that I want to do... For, you, for those of you dear listeners who have written in to complain about how slowly David speaks, and that's all of you, um, you know, uh, I, 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 I need to on someday record it in such a way, and I know that there's an option to do this, but I have so far been too lazy to figure it out, to have your audio show up in, you know, in a separate channel than mine. And just see how much more of it is you speaking than me by time, not necessarily by words, and certainly not by quality. That's interesting. Yeah. Uh, do you know if that capacity exists in the program that you're using? I'm or sure do you that have it to get a more does. professional package? I'm sure that it does, but uh, I'd have to be. There are so many buttons. So I use Audacity to edit this. <laughs> there are so many buttons. I have no idea what they do, and they're not labeled, and I'm just afraid to touch them. So um, to anyone who's ever wondered how we end up with the wonderful sound quality that we do, uh, that's how. Um, yeah. Anyway. Anyway. Anyway, that brings us to today's topic. Um, Somehow. In a, in 
a perfect segue. Uh, no, we're, well, we're talking about how two people can, you know, be saying the same things and yet yield such different results when interpreted just slightly differently. And where can you see a greater mismatch of the minds than Trump's visit to NATO this week? That is a that is a good rhetorical question. Yes, it's a good rhetorical question and a serviceable segue. So. This is, I mean, there may be, just as a warning to our listeners, we have the explicit tag on our podcast. Not because we swear much. If you've listened to even a couple of episodes, you know that maybe once every two or three episodes, David says shit or something like that at some point. Um, we've had the explicit... I like how you put that in my mouth and you said it. Well, it's usually you. Um, and I just want to be honest to the listeners. Uh, we set it to the explicit tag because um, I didn't know if I'd be able to switch it on and off per, per episode. I had no intention of, of figuring out how to bleep things early on. So we haven't really been making use of the explicit tag, but it is there. And uh, some of the stuff that we'll be discussing in today's episode has me so frustrated that I may make up the gap in swears with David today. So I just want to let anybody anybody know, if you're listening to this particular episode with children in the room, maybe put on headphones. <laughs> Because today we're going to talk about NATO. We're going to talk about international institutions more broadly and basically how Trump is giving us such a bizarre moment where you could – I mean if this is the end of the American you know, empire, quote unquote, um, you can really trace specifically decisions that he is making right now out of pure ignorance, decisions that are not part of the national spirit, decisions that neither party agreed to. Decisions that are just him being an idiot, um, how he has been treating our alliances and the entire world trade system in general, that's uh, that's basically what you can trace it to. Well, yeah, so we were talking about this a minute ago. I think uh, it's pretty clear that there is a longer standing American isolationism uh, that Trump picked up on that brought us to this juncture with Trump in office, that if there weren't a wider constituency for that conception of America first, let's just ignore the rest of the world. It can't hurt us. Um, Trump wouldn't be in office. So, you know, I am, I am just as, uh, I, I hold Trump in considerable contempt, uh, for his, views of the world, but um, the problem is that that also requires me to apply that same perspective to the people who looked at Trump and said, yeah, sure, I'll, yeah, I like what this guy's saying. Now, the difference is uh, I don't hold people in contempt. I hold leaders in contempt. I hold people who I have a higher expectation of in you know, emotions like contempt because, you know, regular folks have busy lives and you know, I don't expect them to, um, you know, study history and stay abreast of global politics enough to, um, you know, to have opinions that I would subject to that degree of criticism. Um, but it, but it's still the case that, that those people exist. Uh, those fellow American citizens. So uh, I think it's a, 
you know, it's a it's a bigger story than than this one man's um, idiotic flailing. Although, I mean, although that is obviously a huge part of the story, but he goes and uh, I just saw just I just I don't know if you saw this even, and it's not it's not NATO specifically, but um, it's related to this broader subject of international connections and America's soft empire. But um, Theresa May just uh, she had an interview where she revealed this quote-unquote brutal advice that Trump had given her about negotiating with the EU, that he told her to sue them. Oh. <laughs> it's like, here's, hey, Teresa, I got some great advice. You having trouble with those guys? Sue them. Tie it up in court. <laughs> it's like, he's an idiot. I mean, he's just a moron. He's clearly an idiot. Um, and his idiocy is a big part of the problem. Um, I'm not, I agree with you on that. So I'll, I'll turn it back to you. Uh, right. Yeah. I, I definitely agree with you that the isolationist strand has always been there in American politics and it's, uh, frequently been a problem. Um, uh, that actually brings us to, uh, a side note that I won't, this is probably the best time to bring it up, but it's something that had occurred to me to discuss in this context. Um, for those of us who are not, uh, for those of you listening who are not uh, familiar with this, there's a concept that sometimes gets brought up about um, uh, particular movements or states or empires called the 70-year rule, which is basically that a lot of um, things like the Soviet Union, they tend to last about 70 years. Um, and, and that even uh, applies a little bit to America itself, where we have a constitution that comes through. We get started in 1789, and then in 1860, so you know, give or take 70, give or take a few years, 70 years, we have the Civil War. Um, and that part of the concept behind this is that 70 years is about the right time for enough generations to have lost the founding spirit and uh, forgotten why they did the things that they did, and to feel like. Um, they don't have any, owe any loyalty to that older system anymore. And uh, if you look at it, when was NATO founded? 1949. We're, you know, we're right about to hit the 70-year rule for NATO, too. So it's not, um, it's not unreasonable to say that societally we might have gotten to the point now where, our, as generations pass, we have forgotten the importance of NATO. We've forgotten why it's there. We've forgotten what role it serves. We've forgotten to treat it with respect. And... I mean, you know, of course, Trump is about 70 years old, um, and he, uh, as, as I agree with you, that, um, as I said, this isolationist trend exists, and Trump was saying isolationist things during the campaign, but a lot of previous people have said isolationist things during campaigns and not really gone along with it. I mean, in the 2000 election, foreign affairs basically took a complete back seat. There were a few moments where George W. Bush was you know, quizzed on who's the leader of X, Y, and Z, and he didn't know, and he looked like an idiot. And people said, well, it doesn't matter. We're electing him for his tax cut, his domestic plans, and we're not really going to worry about foreign affairs that much. And then what is he most known for now? What did he have the most influence on? Foreign affairs. And you know, his influence in foreign affairs is largely considered malign at this point. So that's sort of the history of America is that we try to be isolationist. We think about being isolationist and then um, we get a big reminder like Pearl Harbor that we can't be isolationist. It's not our choice. 
Um, and uh, in the, But in the case of previous leaders who've made lots of mistakes internationally, like George W. Bush, starts out with this, you know, America's going to go it alone. Uh, maybe you remember Donald Rumsfeld referring to old Europe, um, that sort of thing. The leaders still had a certain level of competence and awareness to not abandon things like NATO. I mean, under which president has Article 5 of NATO, the mutual defense and attack on one and his attack on all, been invoked? It was under George W. Bush after 9-11. So I, I, it seems to me that I definitely agree with you that the leaders are the ones who are responsible for understanding these things. And we have to elect leaders who have some awareness of these things. And in Trump, he elected somebody who has no idea what he's talking about. And all the signs that he had no idea what he was talking about were there during the election. And that's part of what makes me so frustrated is that, as I said, the other Republican leaders are supposed to be the ones who – who, the ones who, like, you know people like Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell know NATO's importance. You know that they know these international institutions are important, and they're doing nothing to stop him. And that's part of what's so frustrating, is that you just look at this moment in history when America was starting to face a bunch of rising challenges. You've got, uh, you know, of course, the increased populist waves going throughout the country, which have led to illiberal democracies, like in Hungary, Poland, and Turkey. You've got Russia having stepped up its meddling in, a, in an area where cyber warfare allows it to punch above its weight. You've got the rise of China. All of these issues are coming around, and America has basically, under Trump, he's trying to just, I mean, concede is, is not the word to use because he doesn't understand that's what he's doing. But he's just voluntarily wrecking things that have no reason to be wrecked. Yep, and I find the... Uh... Again, to go back to that word contempt, I mean, you mentioned Ryan and McConnell, and that's just, it would verge into a different conversation. Um, uh, but I'll add flake uh, to, the, to the category of people who make it clear that they understand the damage that's being done, but are... Well, I mean, in, in some sense, curiously, uh, not doing anything about it. And in some sense, very obviously, uh, or not doing anything, anything about it for very obvious reasons, because they are prone, utterly supine, uh, having been suborned by this president. So uh, it is it is very frustrating. And yeah, I totally agree with you on the basic point that um, America in fact, does not have a choice. The only, the only option is to live in the world because here we are part of the world and we can pretend that that's not the case and that we can um, lean back and pull into our borders and pull up the ladder and just uh, pursue some kind of pristine um, bounty within our country that <clears throat> is uh, unsullied by these dangerous, confusing uh, trends that, that are bubbling around uh, the world. But, you know, that's just, it's just not an option, not least because the actual sources of our prosperity and stability and health as a country are in healthy interactions with the rest of the world. And it's always been the case. Um, you know, one of the, um, one of the, there was a moment when I really began to dwell on the significance of the fact that the 
not only the university that we went to for our undergraduate education, but a lot of universities, I mean, they're very good universities, are significantly older than the countries in which they reside. Now, there are universities across Europe that are nearly a thousand years old. They're, you know, the Yale, Harvard, Princeton, uh, Dartmouth, I, th I think, I mean, a number of these countries, I mean, they're older than the United States. And that is a hint at the type of world that the brought into existence the structures that we now think we understand. But you know, before there was the United States, there were the trade networks and migration networks that led the United States into existence, right? And now, you know, the triangular trade um, of Atlantic goods and slaves, you know, is, is no longer, that, that no longer exists. But, um, <clears throat> but, you know, we've never been, I mean, America never, the United States of America did not exist hermetically sealed off from the rest of the world at any point in its history. And there's no reason to think that uh, it would lead to a better outcome if we were somehow able to make it so. Um, and it's just, yeah, it's, it's very frustrating to, to appreciate that fact and see um, both fellow countrymen uh, be deceived into thinking that things are or could ever be otherwise. And, uh, and all, <laughs> just beyond dismaying to see the, uh, the administration uh, ripping up these structures. But I mean, at some level, um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm not going to quibble with some of your characterizations of, of Bush. Um, you know, I think, I think there are significant differences in the way that Bush campaigned and then the way he um, ran his foreign policy. Um, I'll just, as a, you know, you, yeah, but I, I'll just put a parenthesis around that. Maybe we can get into it if you want, but I'll just say that um, it's, it's very odd that, Well, uh, yeah, I don't know. It, there's no real theorizing to it. And it's just what we see is the Trump administration going heavily into investing in certain international issues. You know, they are putting a lot of credibility and effort into these negotiations with North Korea, which are nevertheless, you know, spectacularly unsuccessful and uh, likely to... Um, I mean, not literally, you know, blow up in their faces, but to some extent, uh, I'll permit myself that, you know, that, that, um, metaphor. Um, and then the same goes for, um, to some extent, the, uh, yeah, well, I'll, I'll just, I'll, I'll leave it at that, but you know, we have these, it's not a, it's not a pure strategy of isolation as we've kind of made it out to be. Um, they are willing to interfere, intervene with other countries. Um, they're just also 
You're trying to say you're trying. Well, you're trying not to say stupid, but stupid yeah, is what well, you mean. <laughs> right. Also, very stupidly ripping up uh, these international structures that leverage the strength of our allies to uh, project American power and policy throughout the world. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, if you wanted to, if you want to step back and think, why has America been so successful for the last seventy years in the entire post World War II era? And you can look at all of these advantages that we have that other countries would and have killed for in the past. Um, well, and we killed for to get. And that we've killed for to get. It includes the fact that we have a country where, you know, internally we're, we're, we're not subject to um, attacks. I mean, we get individual terrorist attacks, but, you know, you're not going to... The U.S. is not going to get invaded. Um, of course, then they create this fake... Oh, there's an invasion of people coming from Mexico um, or coming from Central, South and Central America. But anyway, if you think about America's advantages, we've got this, as you mentioned, we've got so many universities older than the country. We, and even the ones that are younger than the country are still spectacular, a lot of them. Um, we have people who want to come, people from the rest of the world. There's an American brand, an American idea that you can just that you can come here and this is a land of opportunity. Why do people want to come from South and Central America? Because it's safer here, because you have more opportunity to be prosperous here. We easily get the best minds to come to our universities. And what do we do with that advantage? We kick them out as soon as they graduate as part of our immigration policy. It's it's insane. And you take this great advantage that we have and now not only have we been frittering it away to a certain extent, but now we're putting people in charge who want to double down on the stupid stuff. You want to double down on making it harder to get in here, harder to get harder for smart people to come get a degree, uh, come here and uh, make America even better. And then also not understanding those advantages, they're going to take something like NATO, where they say, oh, well, America puts in 70% of the defense spending. And that's not fair. That's not right. That should change. Well, we've had a lot of presidents who've been calling on those other NATO members to get to their 2% of, uh, of GDP as a contribution. For those of you who are not aware, um, NATO has a, it's, it's non-binding as I understand, a, a just commitment that the countries are going to try to reach a 2% of GDP uh, military defense budget spending. And right now only I think three of the countries are hitting it. It's like America at four or so, Britain at like 2.4 or something, and somebody else. Uh, and I don't know who the other person is, but I remembered it being three. Um, and we've had, you know, the last few presidents, it was, uh, have said, look, guys, please get up to that. But we had this, this, this massive great recession that hit, um, 10 years ago. And a lot of, and Europe has had a lot of issues with it because they, they did austerity more than we did. Uh, and they haven't quite gotten to that 2% target. So Trump, it's not new for people to say, look, guys, you got to hit this 2% target. The way Trump has gone about it is almost as if he said, what's the best way to ensure that none of them spend 2% of their GDP on budget? Well, it would be to have one of the least popular people in the world come to your summit and demand that you do that. I, can you imagine any European leader who can now go back to their country and say, well, you know, after what Trump said, who has, you know, an approval rating approximately the same as syphilis here, um, you know, he said we should increase it. So now we're going to, you can't, when you act like Trump acts, you can't expect any of those leaders to get concessions at home 
to raise their military spending. It's insane. Right. And to some extent, the, it is so absurd that it suggests an effort to realign American partnerships globally with non-democratic regimes because only, I mean, yeah, countries whose leaders are accountable to their publics are forced to act in the way that you're describing, uh, or at least they're, they're forced to, um, to contend with the national outrage and sense of disrespect that some you know, that, 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 that kind of a relationship would, um, would generate. So someone like Macron who has, um, very noticeably taken, uh, the tack of kind of managing the relationship with Trump. Um, you know, he is constrained to some extent by the fact that, as you say, when, um, you know, when, when Trump comes and swaggers and bullies and demands, then, you know, a lot of the French people are going to look at that and say, you know, we need someone who can stand up to that, not someone who is going to, uh, pal around with this moron. Um, that's noticeably not the case with countries like Saudi or China or, um, or Russia for that matter. And, um, you know, I don't, I don't think that is, um, really worth, I mean, that's kind of a level of conspiracy theorizing that I don't think is, uh, really helpful, but, um, but it does, it just raises a question that I think is a good question to keep at a, or it's a touchstone, um, intellectually as we pursue these kinds of questions, which is, you know, what kind of relationships does America, you know, do we think as citizens that our country should engage in around the world? Are they purely transactional, designed to enrich small groups, to manage and preserve uh, a certain stake in the crises that exist? Um, or should it be a kind of relationship built around principles, ideals, human rights, uh, law, right? And, uh, and an attempt to generate the basis of a functioning, uh, democratic peace. I mean, we, you know, we know that the democratic peace is not, it's not a, an iron law of, nature, you know, like democracies can go to war with each other. Uh, and they certainly can go to war with other states. Um, but it's, you know, as an ideal, it's a pretty great ideal. And, um, do we want to, you know, do we want to engage in, uh, alliance structures that serve that ideal or do we want to abandon them? to make it easier to cut deals with, you know, dictators like, like Putin. And I mean, my answer for myself is, is quite obvious. I think it's also the case that, um, you know, there's this, there's this conception, I think, you know, a big part of the, um, 
the Bush version, and here I'm, I'm getting into some of the, maybe some of the critiques I had of your characterization of your invoking Bush. I think it's good to invoke Bush, but I think it's good because it, it creates a significant contrast with, um, with the president administration. Insofar as there was this, there was this sense that, you know, our international commitments constrain us, you know, that, that like, Abiding by the, the, the dictates of the UN, you know, this is just allowing these petty, pathetic little countries to, to push us around in a way that was, uh, you know, beneath our dignity as the greatest country in the world. Um, that definitely existed in the Bush period, uh, but, I think you know, the Bush administration's response to that was, you know, get behind us or just get out of the way. But it wasn't, okay, we're going to take our ball and go home, with the exception of the Human Rights Council in the UN. Uh, that, you know, the Bush administration, um, you know, there's... The, there was a recent, I can't remember exactly when it happened. It was a couple of weeks ago that the, that the Trump administration formally withdrew from, <clears throat> from that. Um, but that was less a sort of unprecedented Trumpian act of vandalism than a, um, sort of return to the mean, because that was, that was the case under the, uh, the Bush administration as well. Yeah. I, um, the human, the, the, the UN Human Rights Council, that was one of those ones where I saw people react to it and I thought, well, I don't know how much, how familiar you are with what is going on there because it's one of those things that sounds really bad when you hear about it. But when you have a little bit of familiarity with you know, what countries happen to be in charge of the Human Rights Council at any particular moment and these horrible human rights violators get in charge because it's rotating and you can look at legitimate problems with the UN Human Rights Council and conclude that it is something you should withdraw from. Like that's yeah, not, it's I mean, not an think... insane thing the way some of his other stuff is insane. Right. And that's, that's the point I was trying to make that, yeah. you know, this is a return to the mean of a certain type of Republican approach to international diplomacy that a lot of, um, a lot of our peers, uh, may find distasteful, but it's not, um, it's not in fact indefensible. Um, but I think um, it's just, I mean, that's the kind of thing, actually, that uh, that type of, you know, the, you know, pausing to reflect on that difference. It's like, well, okay, okay, I see, what, I see what's going on there. You know, I don't agree with it necessarily. I think we're still better off being in the trenches there, you know, rallying other countries uh, who really have a... Um, a, sort of a position to um, speak in good faith about human rights as opposed to Iran or even Russia um, or Syria, you know, or China. Um, uh, you know, you can, but, but reasonable people can, can perhaps disagree on, on participating in a structure that gives those countries access to a position of leadership on those issues. You know, that's something that reasonable people can disagree about, but you know, the idea of Trump tearing apart NATO, which 
is such a vehicle for American interest is just crazy. It's just madness. Um, and yeah, that's, I mean, I think we're, we're just all on the same. We're, it's unclear how um, useful it is, perhaps, perhaps cathartic uh, for our listeners to hear that's us why I was expecting violently agree, yeah. violently agreeing on, on this topic. But I mean, I have to say this is, and this is, and that's part of the problem with it being just the two of us on the show is there's no, our arguments get a little incestuous in the way that, um, you know, we haven't really stopped and said, hey, what's NATO? You know, we've mentioned what Article 5 is, but right. um, with a lot of these these institutions, there's a level of familiarity. Part of the problem is if you if you have familiarity with the things we're talking about, well, then you're not Trump. Like, Trump does not have yeah. this level of familiarity at all, so what's the – like, we can, we can lament the destruction of the Pax Americana – because of Trump, but we can't, I don't know, it's hard to be, it's hard to persuade anyone on this issue, because if you know a lot about the topics, you're already anti-Trump on them. I mean, that may be (laughs) unfair for me to say, but um, I mean, that's, I I don't know people who have, I, I don't really know anybody who's supporting what Trump is doing with NATO, who are elected officials who have any idea what's going on. You can always find Twitter people to say, oh, yeah, make them pay their fair share, et cetera, et cetera. When the NATO arrangement right now, we pay 70% um, you know, of the cost, and we're doing so much of the of the work for NATO, it's not that dissimilar from where did the, where the show started, talking about the Delian League. You know, right. the, the, country, the countries have their contributions to Athens. Athens does most of the actual military work. It's a system that is, I mean, as old as recorded history to have other people, um, you know, contribute in this way. And uh, when these systems start to break apart, it never goes well for the country that tears them down. Can you think of any country that has a dominant role in so many international institutions as we do that decided to tear them down and it ever went well? Well, I mean, it's, it's actually... I mean, I'm not an expert by any means on this subject, but it is analogous in a certain way to the role of the Russian um, Soviet you know, within the Soviet Union. That the, you know, you, you had Russian people uh, who formed the core of this vast multi-ethnic, uh, multinational in their own conception of that term uh, entity and uh, and they got sick of it eventually and they said you know we don't want to do this anymore um, and it all fell apart leading to this um, I'm talking about your 70 70 year rule um, you yeah, know that was that was another example of that you could argue um, and uh the aftermath of that breakdown uh, led to a significant amount of regret for the uh, grandeur, you know, nostalgia, regret and nostalgia for the grandeur that uh, that 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 those previous generations of sacrifice had conveyed. Uh, and so now you have this revanchism, but it comes from a decision of that of that core to shirk off the responsibilities that it had assumed for itself. And then eventually it regretted it right. once it 
once once they sort of came to terms with how with, with the fact that they had gotten really nothing in exchange for that. Um, now, obviously, the the analogy breaks down in all sorts of ways, you know, comparing yeah. it to the United States. But I think it is certainly possible that uh, even these people who are you know, who constitute Trump's base will regret the diminished scope of American, you know, the United States uh, position in global, in the global order. Yeah. If that, if we get to that stage, you know, uh, I, I think it's, I think it's highly conceivable that um, if this, Trumpian act of vandalism actually proceeds and fully guts these international um, organizations, you know, these alliances that uh, that underlie America's. I mean, we've been talking about NATO, so you know, military and political power, but um, but who knows what else it'll do uh, to other organizations um, that provide you know, like the World Bank or the IMF, you know, that, that also allow broadly understood American interests in predictability, stability, uh, transparency, and um, and just the, the simple benefit derived from having a common forum uh, for countries to uh, pursue their interests. Um, that have all redounded to the benefit of the American, you know, American society, you know, largely American capital. But yeah, anyway, so these these organizations that exist um, to, not, I mean, to some extent, they really exist to serve American interests. And if they deteriorate, then it's possible that even these Trumpian people uh, will regret it. They probably won't, you know, forget to that point. Uh, they probably won't, you know, take responsibility for having brought the world to that stage, but they'll probably say like, oh, look at, you know, these limp-wristed, quote-unquote, leaders that we have in Washington that don't even, you know, strut in the way that America deserves to strut on the global stage. Um and America got to the but, position yeah. where it was powerful enough to strut by not strutting. <laughs> like that's right. The fact right. that if, if you had an option in the Cold War, I mean, you've got NATO on one side, you've got the Warsaw Pact, which was basically the Soviet Union's response to NATO, where they're trying to make their own mutual security pact. Um, you look at those two options and where did people want to go? Where was the flow of the population going? The Berlin Wall wasn't to keep people out. It was to keep people in. People wanted to leave the Soviet Union because it wasn't a great place to be. America was the place people wanted to go to. It was the place people wanted to be. Who in America wanted to go to the Soviet Union except for a few crazy left-wingers who had no idea what they'd be getting into? Right, and we don't even have to talk about, you know, the Cold War, which, um, you know, it's. I think it, it's still a good, it is a good touchstone, um, but, you know, it is, it is less and less... Um, I don't know. I, I think it's it is quite possible that it you know that it, that it, it history is always important. Cold War is very important history, but here we are. It's it's over. It's been over for a long time. Um, That's just what they wanted people, you to think. 
Yeah, right. Well, you know, I only mean to say people still want to come to the United States. Right. From all over the world. Um, and the, the system that the leaders of the, of the mid 20th century built and uh, refined that provide these fora for states that are not equals, but, you know, but have certain rights and privileges can interact with one another in these relatively um, defined ways. You know, it's, it's an amazing achievement. And, um, you know, I, I saw it. There was a tweet that uh, Richard Haas put up. Um, the, uh, um, I think still president of the CFR, Council of Foreign Relations. Um, he said something about, you know, the rules-based order that uh, has provided so much for the world. You know, the, the Trump parlaying with Putin and basically making uh, making noises about accepting Russia's annexation of Crimea uh, would be the final nail in the uh, international system that has done so much for world peace over the last 400 years. And it was just a bizarre tweet because it's like, did you not think that there have been wars over the last 400 years? Like, what the hell are you talking about? Um, so there's a, there's a way in which, um, even sophisticated people have very weird ways of processing history. Mm. And there's, there's an incredible, I mean, someone who, if you, if you had the right entree into the conversation with him would never, um, say something that seemingly dumb. Um, someone is, you know, as sophisticated and intelligent as, uh, Richard Haas. Um, but there's nevertheless this, um, you know, there's some very gauzy, uh, romanticized and, um, and self-serving characterizations of history, uh, including 20th century history, including, the roles that these international organizations play where, you know, leftists in particular, you know, they look at, for example, the way that uh, vulture capitalists have been picking at Argentina. Um, and, you know, they might say they would under, you know, they would attack these organizations and say, well, these exist to, uh, you know, they don't do any good for Americans. You know, they don't do any good for the people of the United States. All they do is, is do good for, corporations in the United States that exist to, uh, in the, was it Matt Taibbi who was talking about Goldman Sachs? Was it the, um, vampire squid, mm -hmm. you know, sh shoving its blood sucker in the, in the face of the world. Um, you know, but even those people, <laughs> you know, if, if you share their political stance, um, then that implies a certain set of things. But if you don't share their political stance, you can still agree with their characterization of these institutions, which serve American interests. <laughs> you know? It's like, you almost want to get Donald Trump in a room with like left internationalists to talk about how much American capitalism benefits from all these international organizations. 
but of course that assumes that Trump is, uh, you know, that Trump's actions are the result of lack of knowledge as opposed to a bad faith commitment to destroying the institutions as such. I yeah. think it's pretty clear that it's the latter for all sorts of reasons, not least, you know, we don't want to chase the headlines uh, too much. You know, we want this to be a gift for eternity. Uh, but, you know, these, this unbelievable spectacle of, um, of this last week, uh, says a certain something about the bad faith of the people supporting the president. Yeah. Um, it's as people have pointed out now, um, I don't, as you said, believe that this is a conscious thing at all, but if Trump were a Russian agent doing the bidding of Russia to destabilize the West and get revenge for the fall of the Soviet Union, he'd be doing pretty much what he's doing. He'd be destroying all the institutions and all of the structures that helped um, America win, all the things that have helped America become strong. It's not just NATO. It is the whole world trading system, the whole system of world trade that we've set up that has been phenomenally helpful for us. And Trump doesn't – part of the problem is Trump doesn't even understand – how trade works. He talks about, he, he seems to believe that a trade deficit it means you're losing money, that it's bad. That's right. not what it means. And he doesn't, he doesn't get it. He doesn't understand the basic concepts necessary to function in this world. And he believes that he does know all of those details. And because he believes right. that he knows, he cannot be taught. Right. And all of this, all of this was foreseeable in 2016. Right. But so, as I said, and if you take that view of the people in all of eternity to whom we have given the gift of this podcast, <laughs> and they ask themselves, why did the American empire come apart? And I mean, would, did, why would they make this decision? What social factors could have prompted them to want to destroy their alliances and the whole system that had benefited them so much? This is us from the past yelling to the people <laughs> of the future Nothing. Nothing made us do that. It was one stupid, stupid guy to the extent that you could say, oh, uh, there were social pressures that resulted in his election. It's really more about the fact that our country is in a dysfunctional partisan state that people voted for Trump that knew better. They knew better. There are so many people who knew better. They knew what was coming and they voted for him anyway. And then once he got into office and he started it turned out that he was as stupid as he appeared in the election. They kept enabling him. These people in Congress who just were like, oh, oh well, you know, I'm not going to comment on any tweets. I mean, the, the, the joke has been that Paul Ryan's epitaph with a right on his gravestone is going to be the, the most that can be said of this man is that he never commented on any tweets. That he just sat there doing nothing while the American empire came apart. Nothing. It's just this is. Of the issues that really just get me so mad about this administration, there are just so many, and obviously on a human level, this isn't on this isn't the same as the fact that we've become the people who snatch crying babies away from their crying mothers and then lose right. the babies. Right. Like, no, and then level, and then destroy the documents that could have right. provided uh, ways of tracking. Yeah, the it's I mean, like that was frustrating, but to a certain extent. We've been saying for decades that the Republicans are heartless, horrible people. So that was kind of priced in. But the one thing we expected the Republicans to not be horrible about was to respect the international institutions. I mean, 
they threw such a fuss when Obama moved a bust of Winston Churchill to make way for one of Abraham Lincoln in his office. They said that that was destroying the special relationship. It was an insult to our allies. It was right, well, I was, was going to talk about stuff. this. I was going to talk about this. As we put it in, you know, points out that it gets to this other, you know, this theme of, um, of bizarre bad faith Republican argumentation that's been really it's just gone, gone out of control under Trump, which was like, oh, you did this. It's like you're criticizing me for doing something. Well, what about the time that you did that before? So, okay, they think that that response somehow neutralizes the argument or defends them. But then you step back and say, wait a second. So are you the Republican saying that we should not criticize you for doing the thing that you're criticizing us for doing? Right. Let's just, let's just agree not to do the thing, right? Yeah. Like, you know, so so they criticize Obama as you're just. You know, this is why I'm brought up now. Is they're criticizing Obama for you know for um, diminishing America's role in the world and for being too weak and defeat from leading from behind. You know, from leading from behind exactly. And now Trump is going and taking the structure that uh, that Obama was leading from behind, and he is tearing it apart from the inside. And they're like, well, Obama. Did it like Obama didn't didn't you know Obama didn't lead a crusade into Syria and so now will tear apart the basis of the military alliance that might have allowed us to do something if we had decided that you know robust interference was was in our interest you know we America led from behind and we didn't do enough in Libya so let's tear apart the alliance that, you know, that created the possibility of the French taking the lead that Obama, you know, didn't, right? Like, right. it's it's just, it's totally crazy. Um, but, but again, here we, here we are with our um, sort of, uh, you know, just preaching to one another, taking turns in the choir and in the pulpit. Well, well, let me, you mentioned France, and we've talked about the extent to which, you know, he's, he's undermining parts of NATO. Well, I will have you know, I just got a news alert that, um, as we're taping this now, that NATO relations have deteriorated enough that two NATO member states, France and Croatia, have just invaded each other, um, <laughs> apparently in Russia somehow. Um, yeah, apparently they're they're one to one at the moment. So, oh wow, I don't know who's going to end up winning that conflict. Although my money would probably be on France, based purely on military spending. But you can't. Croatia's crafty. We'll see what they do. Um, Indeed, you yeah. know, I'm I'm going to take that um, complete non sequitur as an excuse to uh, to say that when you somehow when you mentioned um, this podcast as a gift for all time, I just was transported deep into my own imagination and was thinking of a sort of post-apocalyptic future where servers, some, you know, Google servers sunk deep into the ocean somewhere and powered by, you know, wave action or something, uh, were <laughs> just hosting 
bots analyzing human speech and literally listening to our podcast repeatedly for eternity and <laughs> just like drawing lessons, you know, so future listeners listening into eternity know from this day, this is, this is wow. This is how the American empire this is, this, 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 this is how future generations will know. My mind, you know, my mind was just picturing the, those humming servers cooled in the, somewhere in the Atlantic and then the camera sort of pans out and rises up above the waves to the, to the devastation, devastation. of a world. You, you know, blow it up. You bastards, yeah. you blow it up. You didn't have to do it. You just chose to do it. Uh, one, You put one idiot in charge. You didn't put any chunks at him, no matter how much we told you he was an idiot. And then he started doing idiotic things, and you did nothing to stop him. You did yeah. nothing. This is just, this is the, that's why I said, like, with the with the stealing babies part, as I said, we priced in a certain heartless hatred from the part of Republicans that they would enjoy illegal immigrants suffering. When it comes to their NATO institutions, this is one of those things where it's, this is what you believe in. I know you believe in this. What the fuck is wrong with you right now? <laughs> it's, it's, it's just so... so. Mm. Uh, to give a quick source for our listeners... Um, no, but I think, I mean, I think, no, I have, to interrupt, I have to interrupt here because the same people who you could say, oh, we priced in the fact that they were going to be cruel to brown people, those are the same people who don't value NATO. They don't care. They don't under, first of all, they don't understand the fact that NATO uh, is a platform for American power. They think that it's just another net that we've gotten caught in and that we're better off shrugging off. Um, they just, so they're, you know, they're misinformed in some level. Um, but they, you know, they... You know, this this core of know nothing Republicans who propelled Trump through the primaries, you know they don't. You know those are the ones who want the cruelty towards uh, immigrants, and those are the ones who want. I, I, I may be speaking out of turn with greater confidence than is deserved in terms of saying that these are actually the same people, um, but you know my assumption is that it tracks that, the, the, that there's this you know core of. Um, yeah, twenty percent or so of people who are really actively enthusiastic about Trump as such, as opposed to um, white collar traditional Republicans who are along for the ride and the judgeships and the and the low taxes. But you know, the people who are voting for Rubio or or Jeb or who had voted for Bush, you know, these are people who were trying to set up a future where uh, you know immigrant uh, immigrants from Latin America come and become Republicans because a lot of them could. I mean, it's, it, it, it would it would be natural for them to do that. Um, you know, I remember The Economist wrote this article about this in 2005. You know, sort of a long form uh, think piece about the future of you know the Latino, uh, you know, the Latin Lat, Latinx uh, you know community in the United States, politically speaking, and Jeb represented that possibility and you know there are some uh republican voters who are still in that space but obviously they've been um you know they've been uh dominated and subdued by this other segment of the party that doesn't care i mean you're not you know you're, you're not those people who have the whip hand over the republican party now you know they don't care about nato they uh, 
because they don't understand uh, or value its significance. I mean, I think yeah. I think you go a little too far in saying who has control. Um, I mean, you could be right to the extent that a lot of Republicans are afraid to cross Trump because they know that a tweet from him could hurt them in a primary. Like, that's not false. But I don't know. Maybe that is the case. Maybe they are just that cowardly and that worthless and that big pieces of shit that... Um, and, and I guess we know McConnell is like we know McConnell in in 2016. Obama's like, hey, the Russians are attacking us. We need to say something about it. McConnell's like, if you do that, I'll accuse you of partisanship. Like, and we know yeah. that he held open the Garland seat for so long. Mitch McConnell is just one of the worst people in Washington who's trying to destroy everything. It's, no, I think I mean he is he is a so traitor. He is so yeah, a traitor who deserves traitor to be hounded to his grave. Traitor is an appropriate word for what he did in 2016 in terms of saying. You cannot let people know we're under attack by a foreign power or we will accuse you of partisanship. And then and then now he's one of the you know, the Republicans are saying that it's Obama's fault for not doing more before the election. Like, right, and this goes this goes back to the same concept I was referring to. I mean, we need to come up with a catchy sort of phrase for it hmm. um, because everybody would recognize what we're talking about. It's this it's this Republican, you know, Homer Simpson, like Bart Simpson, stop hitting yourself. Right. Thing where it's like. You didn't stop us from doing this bad thing, so it's your fault. Well, I feel like I get that every now and then when people will say that it's the fault of Democrats who were too hard on, you know, Romney and Bush and McCain that we ended up with Trump because we were the boy who cried wolf and no one would trust us anymore. It's like, well, you yeah. saw the fucking wolf. <laughs> like this was not a surprise you know it doesn't matter if an untrustworthy source says hey there's a wolf over there when you can see the wolf with your own right. eyes right anyway we're we're running out of time here uh, i do want to um as i said i have managed to probably double the total amount of profanity we've had on the show so far um you'll still blame me for it well once i'm done editing it it will be your fault um, <laughs> but one thing i want to point our listeners to is um there's a book we read in college if you just want a quick like primer on this there's a book we read in college which is probably a little dated now but only a little bit uh it's called the case for goliath it was by michael mandelbaum i believe um yeah. it basically summarizes why america and a leading role in all these international institutions has been good for the world and for america um, it's the kind of thing where, man, if Trump had read that 10 years ago, things would be going very differently right now. But if you're questioning the stuff we are saying here, I don't believe it was too long of a read. Um, and since it's 10 years old, it's probably cheaply available on any sort of Kindle thing. Um, but I'd recommend that if you have more questions about what we're talking about. To a certain extent, we're two guys who spent four years in college learning about exactly this stuff from people who cared a lot about international institutions. And... Um, there's going to be a lot of stuff we're going to gloss over because it wouldn't occur to us to say it because those are the questions we asked, you know, yeah. a long time ago because we took that class. And now or, those or classes indeed, plural. the book by the uh, illustrious Paul Kennedy, Parliament, uh, Parliament, Parliament of, Man, of Man, History of the United Nations. The UN. Yeah. yeah. Um, or, of course, Paul Kennedy's Rise and Fall of the Great Powers, of which not all of it has held up over the 30 years since it's been written, but as he himself would admit, but... Um, or Gaddis's Surprise Security in the American Surprise Experience. Surprise Security in the American Experience. Um, Gaddis's new book on grand strategy that I have not had a chance to read yet. Um, suffice to say, any of Charles <laughs> we, we Hill, Paul Kennedy, or John Lewis Gaddis. Books to each other. Yeah, we're just shouting book na names of books that we read that professors that we took classes for have, have done. Um, 
No, but I mean, but actually, I, I would just say uh, the reason I mentioned surprise security in the American experience specifically is that it provides, you know, it's very short, and it's something that a lot of these people who are inclined to think that these institutions don't do anything for American mm -hmm. security would be inclined to read because it does not make a left liberal oh, yeah. human rights uh, type argument for these institutions. It is hardcore realist and basically basically making an apology for, um, I mean, it can, could be argued to essentially make an apology for um, America's brutal treatment of the Native Americans, for example, uh, because it says, you know, we did this the hard way. We, we kept getting attacked and expanding. And up till now, we have not retreated from those uh, sort of security perimeters that we threw up after being attacked. And obviously the book was written a long time ago, so it doesn't really, um, I mean, well, a long time ago. It was you know, yeah, 15 uh, what, years. 10, I mean, it's 10 years, basically 10 years about the Iraq war. Yeah. Right. But, uh, but it's a, I mean, it's a book that theoretically could speak to these um, sort of proverbial Trump voters who uh, who aren't inclined to listen about you know listen to lefties talk about human rights and America's responsibilities and things like that, but but could potentially uh, hear in their own language you know, an argument about power and security and the fact that it's just better for us to preserve these systems that um, the have that provide a home for American, uh, well, military bases to speak concretely around the world. So, yeah. Anyway. So that's, uh, our sign off then, um, will be our initial, our, this edition of book club where David and I club each other with the names of books by shouting <laughs> them very loudly. Um, we hope to see you next week. Uh, hopefully there'll be better news in the world to be talking about. Um, but somehow I doubt it. All right. Well, until next week, uh, I hope you have a nice time with things making you happy, I guess. And that you have fewer <laughs> causes to shout profanities. Um, as I said, I get kind of worked up over this issue. Not because it's not a bigger moral failing than the child separation policy, but it is more of one where I want to just grab them and shout at them. Than the child, the child separation policy, if you hear that and your reaction is they shouldn't have come across the country illegally, I can't appeal to your heart because you don't have one. But if, but in this situation, this is one where it's really a what is wrong with you question. Um, anyway, right. so I'm going to, I'm going to go eat my feelings on that thought and I'll see you next week.